Good morning. My name is Aubrey. If we haven't met before, I do hope to meet you. Michal O'Shea is an Irish poet. One of his books of poetry is called Love Life. It tells the story of his 36-year-long marriage to Brid, his wife. It stretches from their early erotic obsession through the dramas of wooing into the quarreling and hurt that comes with the ordinary demands of a domestic life. As time goes by, what, what you recognize in his poems is the story of young love opening to intimacy and growing into commitment. You see this slow transformation of their life together. At the core of this book of poems, there's this theme that just keeps recurring. It's the theme of O'Shea's amazement at the mystery of his wife. When I read his poems, I'm often reminded of one of my favorite poets, Bono, when he sings it. They laughed at that. It's not funny. <laughs> There's a song where Bono sings about the mysterious distance between a man and a woman. Keith is like the master of lyrics. If you've never gone on a car ride with Keith, you'll meet lots of musicians in their songs. Bono sings about this mysterious distance between a man and a woman. After 28 years of marriage to Janelle, I feel that. I feel what O'Shea writes about in his poetry and Bono sings about. O'Shea's got this poem, this poem where, he, where he's writing about his wife. It's always tricky quoting poetry in sermons. Half the room, it sounds like Greek. The other half think you finally said something that matters. But here we go. I glance at you. There's so much unexplained. Plays of light keep provoking your infinity. Something, already something in your presence overflows me. A gleam of a face refusing to be contained. How little I know of you. Again and again. So soon astray in this unknowable terrain. 21 years and I'm journeying to discover only what your face reveals, stranger and lover. Our psalm this morning, Psalm 63, is another great poet. It's David's astonishing love affair with God. It's like reading O'Shea's poetry. And this morning, I want to share with you three glimpses into the depths of David's relationship with God. If you brought along a Bible, please turn to Psalm 63. If you didn't, you can cheat. It's in your worship guide. Just don't let people around you see you because they'll shame you for it. No, no. Psalm 63. 
Verse one, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I'll seek you. Now look, you have to read Psalm 63 as if you're reading a love poem from O'Shea to his wife. This is erotic love poetry, okay? Just think if he was talking to his wife. Earnestly I seek you, right? Okay. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. Beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. This incredible thirst and desire that David has for God. It's a need. And the only solution for him is to see God. So he goes to the temple. Verse 2. So I go and I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. And then he makes the incredible statement in verse three, your love is better than life. The word here for love, it's this amazing word in Hebrew, hesed. It's about steadfast faithfulness. It's the whole book of Hosea. It's betrayal and refusal to give up on the one who betrayed. It's this deep commitment. It's, like the, it's a love like the waves of the ocean that just never stops coming. It's a never ending, tender commitment. It's, it's a fierce devotion of a mother to her child. David says this love that God has for him is more valuable to David than David's own life. This is a moment in David's prayer where his love for God is just pure adoration. God's love for David pales in comparison to the very best experiences David has ever had in his life. And so what we see here is a glimpse into the passion of David's love for God. The passion. That's the first glimpse. Now look with me at the second set of verses, verses five through eight, and we see another glimpse. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed. Now remember, this is erotic love poetry. When I remember you upon my bed, And meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Now that last last phrase. My soul clings to you. Keep your spot. Um, No, 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 no. So this was originally written in Hebrew. Our English Bibles, that word cling. In Hebrew, it's davak. Literally, to cling, to cleave, to hold fast. Now, if you grew up like I did in the church using the King James Version of the Bible, 
you memorized a verse of scripture with cleave in it. It was one of the most fundamental scriptures in all the Bible. It was Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. It's the same word. Therefore a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they will be one flesh. Now this is amazing. Psalm 63, David says, my soul and as a poet, as he's looking for the word, he goes to the first, the most significant description of sex in the Bible. Think about this. David describes his love for God in the terms of this intimacy, this erotic love between a husband and wife. He's saying that like those moments when a husband and wife turn to one another and cling to one another, he says, God, that's what my relationship with you is like. You see, to be a human is to long for completion. God created us with a longing for completion that forces us to look outside of ourselves and this longing, it teaches us something. Sex between a husband and wife, it can train us to turn away from idols, from ingrown selfishness, to kingdom work, to point our whole lives, our body, our soul, our sex, everything that we have toward the only one who can truly satisfy the thirsty animals that we are. And the God that we have met in Jesus Christ promises us in John chapter 4, those who drink of the water that I will give will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. Our sexual, our sexual instincts, our sexuality, it points us to the need we have for God. God completes us. A Christian understanding of sexuality focuses more on the longing for completion as something that exists regardless of our marital status or our sexual experience. It's fundamental to what it means to be a human. We long for the other, for completion. And it points to this eternal reality. God made us for himself. And we will be restless until we rest in him. In our secular age, we think we know what sex really is. We, we have outgrown romance, and we know that sex is about the clash of bodies. There's no magic. There's no mystery. We need a re-enchantment of sex. We need to learn again that the lover's enthrallment to his beloved is the Lord's fascination for you, for me. Sex is a reflection of the joyous self-giving and pleasure of love within the triune God. Sex is glorious 
because it reflects the love of the Trinity, but it also points to the eternal delight that your soul will have in God in heaven. Romans chapter 7 tells us that the best marriages are pointers to the deep, infinitely fulfilling union with Christ that we will have. No wonder, as some have said, that sex between a man and a woman can be a sort of embodied, out-of-body experience. It's this breathtaking, scarcely-to-be-imagined glimpse into the future. Think about this. Listen to these words again. My soul will be satisfied as, as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. That last phrase, that's a riff. That's Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 5. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. Where did Solomon learn that? This is an erotic and intimate love affair. This, this is Bernini's famous statue, the ecstasy of St. Teresa. Jesus loves you. And you can know him. And you can love him. He cares for you. And he invites you to be his lover. To learn from him. To find rest for your soul. That's a second glimpse into David's great prayer of intimacy. It's a relationship of, that is astonishing, not only in its passion, but in its intimacy. Now look with me at the final section, Psalm, nine, Psalm 63, verses 9 through 11. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. It's a strange way to end this love poem, isn't it? Unless you know that David, when he writes this, is running for his life. This third glimpse into David's love for God, we see that it is astonishing in its strength. David is writing this intimate love prayer as his life is being threatened. He's in danger. He has a powerful enemy who is chasing him through the wilderness of Judah. And when he catches David, he is going to kill David. David is praying this prayer of love while he's on the run. When he prayed back in verse 3, your steadfast love for me is better than life. His life was hanging by a thread. He was thinking about the value of his life. He was facing the strong possibility that it was about to be over. The real possibility of his impending murder. And in the face of that 
that slaughter, the strength of his love for God is just mind-boggling, isn't it? Here is love, strong love. As he looks at the possible end of his life and he's counting what is best in life, he says, you know what was best? You know what is better than everything? Your love for me, God. Isn't this astonishing? The passion, the intimacy, the strength of David's love for God and you and me. We can have this too. Do you have this? You can. You can have this kind of relationship with Jesus. John's gospel, at the beginning it says that Jesus is in the bosom of the Father, in the klopos, the breast of the Father. The Greek word is klopos, breast. At the Last Supper, it says the beloved disciple is laying his head on the klopos of Jesus. And it's this way of saying that Jesus' intimacy of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the whole project of Jesus was to invite us into that. We can have that. You can have that. I can have that. How in the world? How do we get to that? How do we learn to pray like this? To be like this? How do we get such a passion, such an intimate, such a strong love relationship with God? How can we move this prayer out of this book into the house of our own souls? I think that if we want to become people for whom this prayer is our prayer, we need to follow Jesus. We need to follow his pattern. We need to see that Jesus was an observant Jew, that he took part in synagogue worship, and he started and ended his days with prayer. And we too need to do this. This isn't the kind of relationship with Jesus. This doesn't just happen accidentally. It's not just for the chosen few who really feel it and really get it. It's not just for the artistic types. It's here. It's available for all of us. But we have to do something to enter into this. So I want to encourage you to make praying this prayer a part of your life. Set aside time every day to read the scriptures and to pray. This will shape you. I I can't tell you how soul-shaping it's been that my parents taught me to read the Bible and pray on a daily basis. And from the time I learned how to read, I've not always kept this discipline perfectly, but it's been a basic rhythm in good and bad times of my life to start and end my days in Scripture and in prayer. This rhythm of a daily time with God. Now, most of the time, it's not fireworks. Most of the time, it's just barely perceptible what it's doing for you. There are times when it's significant. But even more important, the habit of spending time in prayer and scripture every day is what makes us into the kind of people who when our life is at an end, This is what comes out of us. 
There, it's, it's this daily time in prayer that shapes us at an unconscious level and it shapes those layers of us where the sediment of the past is deposited. It nourishes our instincts, our intuitions, and our reactions every day. You need to meet with God in prayer and scripture. And don't let this depend on whether you believe in him or not, or whether you feel it or not. This is a long-term formative thing. We need to take it on trust that we need this. But even the good routine of a daily time alone with God, to be honest, is not enough. In fact, as we look at Jesus' own pattern of praying, we see in the Gospels that his own prayer life didn't just stay there. Worship on Sunday, daily quiet time. We see him in moments where his own prayer life overflows the bank of those two disciplines. And suddenly, in moments in his life, like in our Gospel reading, You see him spending whole nights in prayer, getting up extra early to be alone for prayer, going away with a few close friends for retreats of prayer, 40 days of not eating so he can focus on prayer. And there's a vital lesson here. The simple truth is that God is so big. Jesus loves you so much that we need both the ordinary patterns of prayer and the extraordinary opportunities of prayer. In a culture of busyness, it is so easy for us to just give God a slot in our schedule. This is how we live. We have to be at our jobs. We have to go to our schools. We have schedules we have to keep. Most of us can't linger with God. For most of us, for most of the time, we set aside time for prayer. When that time is up, we get up and we have the next thing to do. That's okay. That's all right. But from time to time, it is a good idea when you go to prayer to stay as long as God wants. It's easy for us, isn't it, to find ourselves treating God less graciously than our best friends, than our spouses, or even our customers. In all those relationships, we recognize occasions when whatever is going on has to just take as long as it takes. This is part of the unpredictability of life. We are not in control. And if we try to set limits in advance and cut everything off when the time slot is us up, we miss out on vital things. Every now and then, you and I need an open-ended slot to pray. This could mean clearing a day or starting where you start to pray in the morning and you don't have anything else on the schedule until God is finished with you. For some of us, it might mean the opposite. It might mean treating God the way you treat your good friends. You go to a party and you'll come home when you come home. And a couple of times a year, you wreck yourself and you stay up way longer than you should be staying up because your friends are worth it. We need to do this with God sometimes. We need to have these moments where we give God as long as he wants tonight. 
open-ended times of prayer give us a chance to do the things we can't do in our daily devotional life. You can savor one name after another of God. You can linger over the past few years of your life and look for the places where you want to give thanks and you need to repent. You can read through a book of the Bible and, and, or meditate on a passage slowly, prayerfully. You might pray with a pen and a journal or you might work through a complex situation and just go through it over and over and over just like you do with your friends. But you do it with Jesus. You just talk your way through it. We might use art to guide us into an intimate adoration of praise. Have you ever seen Bernini's statue, St. Teresa in Ecstasy? You might pray for one person after another, working your way through your whole extended family or classmates at school or church family or friends at work. This can be a conversation with Jesus or it can be just sitting with silence or shouting or singing. It doesn't matter if you drop off to sleep and your mind wonders, have you ever been to a party with Chris Rooker? I've seen him drop off to sleep in the middle of more parties than I can count. And then he perks back up and he's like, right back. You can do that to God. It's all right if your mind wanders. There's time to wake up when you have no time slot. There's time to wake up and pick the thread up again. And you don't have to feel guilty about it. Look back at Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. Will you do that? Will you find a time to give God as much time as he wants? Let's pray.